0: Today on the show, we have Zeke Testa, former All-American goalie for the and Beavers, current Senior Director of Sales at Citrio. We get to hear about Zeke's path from BDR to running sales organizations. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional
1: merchants of change. What's up, kid? How are we doing? What's happening, brother? Good. How are you? Good, man. I'm excited. We got Zeke Testa here today. Zeke, thanks for joining the the show with us, my friend.
2: Yeah, Jr. John, uh, great to be a part of this. Thanks for the invite. Looking forward to our conversation today.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, so Zeke's another another Massachusetts guy, John. Um, and Zeke,
2: you you grew up in uh, in Wellesley, Mass, right? I sure did. Yeah, I uh, my friends make fun of me today, but uh, I haven't gone too far from home. I grew up in Wellesley, Mass. I went to Babson College in Wellesley, Mass, and my wife and I moved back to Wellesley, Mass. back in 2019. So haven't strayed too far from home, but love every second of it. That's for sure.
1: Everybody I grew up with, their goal is to live in Wellesley.
3: So you're doing something right, dude. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a nice part of that. I, I'm from Mansfield, Zeke. So I'm, uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that. But did you, so t- talk a little bit about your background. Did you go to Wellesley High or did you go to private school? Talk about you kind know, of growing up there and what you're up to yeah. at Wellesley.
2: Yeah, no, good question. I mean, my background, I went to Wellesley Public Schools once Wellesley High graduated in 2008. Um, to further my academic and hockey aspirations, uh, I decided to pursue a post-grad year. Uh, so I went to Berkshire, uh, the Berkshire School out in Western Mass. So I did one year there, uh, and ended up, you know, falling in love with absent, uh, Jamie Rice and, decided to pursue, you know, my collegiate career and academics and athletics at Babson College. But I love growing up in Wellesley, um, you know, some of my best friends today are my high school friends that I grew up playing might hockey with and, you know, Wellesley Youth Hockey. Um, we still skate today, you know, we have a game tonight where I'm still skating with some of my buddies that I played youth hockey with. So love the community, uh, love the town. The location is great. Um, I just couldn't say enough great things about my experience, and I think that speaks to why we moved back here. You know, I have two kids now, and we want to give our kids the same type of experience that I had um, coming through Wellesley. So, very appreciative and thankful uh, for my experience. Did your wife grow up in Wellesley too? No, she grew up in Connecticut. She's from Connecticut. Nice. We actually met at Babson, though. Um, she was getting her MBA. I was in coaching field hockey and lacrosse, and I was coaching ice hockey. So that's where we met.
1: Ah, very cool. Now, obviously, I know Berkshire. I, I played at Cushing. We used to drive out to Berkshire, and we had some awesome barn burners out there in hockey and in football. So, were you uh, were you a, a good student at at Wellesley at Wellesley High School, or did you go was part of an academic for Berkshire?
2: Uh, to answer your question, no, I was not a good student. I'd say I was an average <laughs> student to below average student, and I have no one else to blame but myself. And I think. Um, it really came down to, I mean, if you think about it, the way I like to think about it today is I was a good student for the amount of work that I put into it, right? Where I didn't apply myself as much in Wellesley, High, at Wellesley High as much as I probably should have. Um, and I got the results that I put into it, right? Um, so I was a B minus C plus student and I didn't have the structure, I think, at Wellesley High School. And that's my, my own doing for, to be ready for the college curriculum and work-life balance and needing to manage your own schedule, carving out time to get your work done, but then you also have to balance the athletic schedule. Um, So I needed that extra year from a developmental standpoint, academically, most importantly, um, but also athletically, you know, because I wanted to play or I had aspirations to play a high level of collegiate hockey um, and I didn't think that that was going to be possible out of Wellesley High so I kind of knew heading into my senior year where other people are looking at what colleges do I want to go to I didn't even look at colleges I only looked at prep schools because I knew that that, that, that was a path I was going down so um, and I visited you know the uh, the Salisburys the Kent, um, you know, those schools and landed on Berkshire just really fell in love with the place and uh, the coach over there. So I had a gr- I couldn't say enough great things about my experience. I know other people might have other comments, but I really embraced the PG year um, and got the most out of it. So very great.
3: So Zeke, a lot of our listeners do, they do junior college or they, you know, post-grad or prep school or things like that. So when you got to Berkshire, did you have any idea what life was after that or was it hockey the whole time
2: or can you talk a little bit about what your thoughts were in prep school i mean you go from uh you know five days a week at wellesley high where that's 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 similar in every other town but at berkshire we get went to school six days a week right so you talk about someone that didn't love being in the classroom and all of a sudden i'm signing up for something where i'm going to class six days a week you have half days on wednesdays and saturdays so you can go travel to play sports but you're still going to school on saturday morning um, for me it was definitely an adjustment but it was a great bridge from i think being thrust into a competitive as competitive of an academic uh, curriculum or schedule as colleges it's a good balance intermediary between jumping in from high school straight to college where that post grad year yes it's helpful from what you learn in the classroom but i think it's more helpful from what you learn in terms of schedule structure you know, how do you build on that structure that you create, you know, you're forced in mandatory, you know, your mandatory work studies or working work, uh, you know, study, study group study sessions from eight to 10 every single night. You know that's, you know, quiet time. So that, t- those types of habits that were forced upon me, um, stuck. Right. And, um, they definitely, uh, played a big part in terms of preparing myself to be, Somewhat successful in college. And, you know, I wasn't, I'm not going to say that that carried me to be a, you know, cum laude student or graduate cum laude from Babson, but it definitely helped in terms of understanding how to balance the workload, setting aside time, knowing how to be efficient in that time. So uh, it, it was incredibly helpful uh, getting that extra year there. Absolutely.
1: Babson is like, it's one of the best schools in the country, Zeke. And like, I, similarly, like, I never really went far from home either. I grew up in central Mass grew up my all my grandparents were from Worcester um so like for me Holy Cross was always something that like I strived for honestly like I would spend summers up there working out like I I like that was my goal was it similar growing up in Wellesley did you guys view bas in the same way was like was yeah. or was it like I know coach ricer he's unreal was it was it more about coach ricer or was Babson always something that you were like wow that would be amazing if I could
2: go to that school yeah, it, you know, looking back, I, I realized how I had been a part of the Babson, Babson college skating rink, at least for my entire life. You know, that was the first place I ever skated where, you know, I was doing mini mites there. I was doing Learn to skate at the Babson skating center. Um, I used to go to the Babson hockey games. My uncle coached at Babson back in the eighties, Steve Sterling. So I had always, you know, I'd always been around it. And it's funny you asked that question because when I was playing at Walsley High, I never thought I would end up at Babson. And I I always looked at those banners that they have on the wall, and it's the NESCACs, the other schools in the ECAC. and it's like, oh, where do you want to go? And, you know, it was funny because one of the guys that works at the rink was like, have you ever thought about playing for the one in the middle of the banners, which was obviously Babson? And I was like, you know, I never thought about it. Um, maybe it was from an academic reach standpoint or just being in Wellesley, uh, but I'd been so around it my entire life that, you know, when Coach Rice called me and said, we can get you in, you know, I didn't even, I don't even think I let him finish the question before I said, yes, this is exactly what, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to go. This is what I want to do. So, um, I think subtly it was always something that I was excited about pursuing or having the opportunity to doing it. And then once it became a reality, it was a no brainer an absolute no brainer for me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I can see that. I, I, and the first time I skated was at Holy Cross too. So we share that in common. That's really cool. Um, you talked, you talked a lot about like your habits as a student and how they changed. Like, obviously you had an unbelievable hockey career, Zeke, like how, how did you approach hockey differently than you approached being in the classroom? And like, looking back now, do you see kind of how, how you could have
2: applied that? For sure. Yeah. I mean, I try not to go through with any sort of regrets, but I think if there's one thing that I would say that I I wish I did, a better job of in in college was applying myself more academically. Um, and again, I don't think that that necessarily would have changed where I am today for my own professional career, but I think that there's just so much, there are so many great resources there at your disposal that you don't even tap into, you know, as a hockey player, you know, you're going to go to any trainer possible. You're going to get on as much ice as you possibly can to try to get better every single day. You know, that's the mentality you have as an athlete is if I stretch, I'm going to be more flexible and be able to make that safe. You know, if I work out, I'm going to be that much stronger to make a stronger push to make that save. right? Like you do anything to try to be the best athlete you can. And in school, at least for me, I wish I had taken that similar approach where I tapped into every resource possible, or I applied myself the same way because who knows what I could have learned. You know, I think it's, there's no regrets because of where I am today, but it's what have I missed out on because I didn't take that similar approach to academics that it did with athletics. Um, so I think if going back, I would say, you know, how, how would you have done that? I would have, I would have networked more people outside of athletics. I would have volunteered for more groups or more office hours that, Professors gave their, their valuable time to. Um, you know, those are great resources that I just never, I never bothered to do it because I went to my classes, I did my work, that was it. You know, it was just kind of status quo. And everyone knows as an athlete, your status quo, you're going to fizzle out pretty quickly. Um, and it's the same thing in a professional setting. If you do average or status quo, you're going to be lost in the pack or get left behind. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of things that I look back on that had I applied those lessons that I just came naturally as an athlete to academics, I, who knows what I could have absorbed or learned, or maybe I'd be in the same position today. I just think looking back and I take a lot of that with me today and, you know, I make sure I'm moving forward. I don't, I don't leave that on the table.
1: hundred percent. Um, on, on the hockey side, obviously you had an unreal all American career at Babson. What, what, like, and then you went on to the, you played a little professional, um, <laughs> very little <laughs> <laughs> well t- talk a little bit about like what's your favorite moment of your playing career and then t- 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 explain what you mean by very little,
2: <laughs> very <laughs> little. <laughs> uh so i think the, the the biggest moment the best moment for my playing career was definitely uh winning the, the league championship or ecac East championship my senior year at babson um Collectively as a group, we had not won a championship before where a Babson winning a championship is almost, you know, a rite of passage where your class has to at least win one. And we were, we made it two times before we lost very close games to the same team both times, Norwich. And, um, you know, it just really burned at our senior class, our group that we hadn't been able to get over that hump, uh, athletically or as a team to win. And personally, you know, as a, I was a goalie. Um, as a goalie, there's only one net and heading into my senior year, I'd been the starting goalie for three years, uh, heading into my senior year. And I started the season as a starter, um, and as a captain. And then I quickly, you know, two games in, we had a freshman goalie who is, was an absolute stud, uh, Jamie Murray, who took over as a starting role, a starting goalie. Um, so two games in my senior year, which is supposed to be my best year yet. My last year, you know, pu- putting a bow in my career, I was on the bench. You know, only one boy can play. So, personally, not the way you want to start um, your senior year. But, you know, wanted to be there for my team, wanted to be a leader, wanted to still be a captain, you know, first on the ice, hardest tried to be the hardest worker on the ice, tried to support my teammates no matter what, and just knew, you know, I would get another shot. You know, Friday night games, in, in D3 at least, it's Friday, Saturday games, you know, Friday night after games, I'd be in the weight room until 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, knowing I wasn't going to play the next day because... He just won, or he was on a roll. Just getting myself prepared. So then, when I did get a shot, I was ready. And you know, I didn't know that it was going to happen when I was doing it. But this is, a, I think, a good lesson. Something that I've always, I've always lived on, up to, or tried to live up to, is when I did get my number called, I performed and I executed, and I won the starting job back. Right, and became an All American, and won the championship and you know got an opportunity to play professional hockey right so the only reason why i say that is not to say look at all the things that i did personally it's just more of the lesson in terms of i was so proud of that season and winning that championship from everything the team had gone through the program had gone through and then i had gone through personally with losing the job early on and then fighting back to you know get it and then also win the ultimate title of well maybe not the ultimate title but for our goal of winning our league championship so um definitely the the best Hockey experience that I've been through was winning the championship that year.
3: That's sexy, and uh, I, I'm a football guy, but I love I love the championship story, the team mentality. But because I'm a football guy, I got to ask because I've heard things from Jr. But are goalies usually like weird dudes, or you know, <laughs> you talk about that. Everybody's like, yeah, I play hockey, and they say I'm a goalie, and it's like, oh, okay. So, yeah,
2: I would say a lot <laughs> of my. I mean, it's not the first time I've heard that. Um, I would say. My friends always say, I'm, I'm an outlier. You know, you're not, you're not, you don't fit the goalie mold. Maybe they're just saying that to me to make me feel better. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think goalies have a reputation and goalies that I've known have definitely been a little bit off, but I think you have to be um, to, to want to sign up to do something like that. But, you know, I look at forwards that are blocking shots with no pads on and thinking that they're the ones that are crazy. You know, I play defense now. I don't play goalie when I play men's league and, you know, I, Flamingo it, and I pick my leg up every time a shot comes through, and I, you know, so I'm 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 paying back the goalies for all the defensemen that screened me through my days. But um yes, goalies are a different breed, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, you sign up to get in front of a hard disk, John. Like you gotta, there's gotta be a little bit of a screw loose there, man. Like it's just that's just a fact. It's just like you know the cost of doing business a little
2: bit. Um, like a slot receiver in football. I don't know <laughs> who signed up to be a slot receiver in football. Right. Right.
1: Who's coming through the middle on purpose? <laughs> uh, so, so, Zeke, you're you're an All American. You're at like one of the best schools in the country, and you probably just can't wait to get into technology sales. Am I right? Like, is that is that kind of where your head was the whole time, or what?
2: Four years training to be a, a, in SaaS sales. Absolutely, <laughs> that's, that's what I was dreaming about. <laughs> that's what I was dreaming about. Yeah, no, I had um, I had no idea what I wanted to do. When I was in college, I had no idea. I was so focused on hockey, hanging out with friends, you know, enjoying the college moments that I think are super important, like incredibly important. But I was not thinking, what what was I going to do once this ended? Um, And everyone uh, is met with that reality at some point. And that's when you start thinking about, well, did I really put myself in the best position to pursue a career that I wanted to after? And I think that's the hardest part what do you want to do after you graduate? It's so easy to say, well, find something that interests you. Well, I'm interested in hockey, right? That's what (laughs) I was interested in at the time. So I pursued that for a little bit. I was fortunate enough to go play down in Florida in the ECHL. And again, I'll say play very loosely because I played one preseason game. That was it. Um, I stuck around because there was an injury in the NHL. And as a goalie, you just rise with with an injury. You stick around once you got healthy. See you later. Bags were packed. I was driving north. And then I got into coaching because I didn't know what else to do at that time. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But uh, I got into software sales through my network, right? And I think this is a it's a big lesson for people that are going through evaluating their own options of you know, where to look, who to reach out to, right? So I reached out to my family. I reached out to my friends and started talking to them about companies that they've spoken with or that they've worked for. Um, so I really just opened up my network and that resulted in two jobs, like two job opportunities that I applied for. And that was it. Like right? to me, it was, Hey, these are people that know this and this is where I'm going to apply. So again, it was a little bit of a learn lesson learned in terms of opening up and broadening your search and putting a little bit more work into a company that you want to go and work with. Were for. those two jobs, uh, Zeke, were those two jobs, tech sales jobs? They were. Yep. Completely different, completely different industries in turn. I knew it. So I guess going back to like, what did I wanted to do? What I wanted to do in terms of a career, not necessarily what company. Um, I've always known sales to a degree because my dad had been uh, in sales for 30 years. He then moved into marketing and then did management, did product management. So he kind of got a well there. So in talking with him, you know, I said, what do you think? He said, sales. And I said, why? You touch every facet of the business in sales. You know, you're talking. You're working with marketing. You're working with your finance team to see if deals can work. You know, you're working with your channel. You're working with your your HR. You, you touch every facet of the business when you're in sales. And the way that he described it, that I use when I talk to younger people that are looking to do it, you get your MBA in sales by being an entry level sales professional, right? By being so, SDR, BDR, you get your MBA in sales, and you learn other areas of the business that if for some reason, is more interesting or exciting for you. You can move over that, right? Um, so I just found that this was a great foundation to start in to absorb as much from a company as I possibly could, and the best way to do that is to understand how to talk about it, understand how to pitch it, and get someone to buy it, and then listen and learn from your customers about what they enjoy about that, and apply that to you know your message. So I just think it's such a good foundation. It was such a good foundation in you know propelling my career. Yeah,
3: Zekin, I think you're in a I don't want to say you're lucky, but you're in a fortunate position that you were surrounded by people that kind of in your network talked about tech sales because what we found in the past, and I've talked to people plenty of times where they stop playing lacrosse and their uncle tells them that maybe they should go do the Marine Corps officer training. Right. And then they're like, you know, their aunt says, Hey, why don't you go sell insurance at Liberty Mutual? That's what my husband did. And a lot of athletes who, when they stop playing, they fall into. What does their brother do, or what does their neighbor do, or their sister, and who who can kind of guide them at that point? Because all of a sudden they stop thinking NHL, 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 or MLB, 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 and they're like, okay, what do I do next? So I think you're you're in a fortunate position there that they weren't like uh you know some other job that it took you many years to get into tech sales, uh, and I think that's uh, an important thing to talk about too, Jr. Because Jr. is always telling people. Had he known, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, had he known that tech sales was an option after school, he would have kind of taken a deep breath in college and said, okay, you know, I, I, I have an idea of what I might want to do after. But a lot of people spend times pursuing the law degree or, you know, their MBA or all kinds of degrees because they're not sure what they can do. So part of the Shifts group is, or the whole reason shift group is here is to educate athletes that this is a world-class career. So I think that's that's an important thing
2: to point out. Yeah, I think just going off, I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think going off of that too, as an athlete, you tend to, you want to be a part of that team. So you look to other people on your team and what are they doing, right? So if you have a group that have been successful before you going into a certain career path that you know what they've done as athletes, as people, as a part of a team, and they're successful in that, you want to be a part of that, right? So talking back about the shift, like that doesn't exist for something for someone like me back in the day, but had I known about it and I'd seen, oh, a player from Trinity was a part of the shift group, got a tech job, a tech sales job, and is making a ton of money, being very successful, however he may measure success, you know, for me that's I want that. You know? I know what that I know what that mold looks like. I can do that. It shows it's less of a hypothetical, it's more of a reality. Um and a lot of people don't have that those types of resources today or connections to be able to, you know, have those opportunities.
1: Totally. And and we, we have worked with some Babson Beavers. I think it was one of your one of your teammates, uh, Jared Wiedemann, who like, yeah. unlike us, didn't make the jump right into tech sales. He was working at like PepsiCo, I think, um, in sales, in sales leadership, doing pretty well, but you know, started to see guys like you, guys like Baldy, guys like Rochi, you know, Terry Woods. There's Babson's unique, John, and like there's a lot of guys that played hockey at Babson that actually end up at tech sales they've got a bunch of alumni that kind of push push the people there so I think you know Zeke was definitely lucky in that but Zeke like stepping out of that like Babson kind of bubble a little bit like what advice would you give to some of the kids that are listening to this in terms of like what what should they be doing outside of calling chip group but like what other things should they be doing if this is a career that is interesting to them
2: yeah. I mean, I think I, I, as a sales leader, I always appreciate when people always reach out to me to just pick my brain for 30 minutes about my own experience. So one thing that I would say is eliminate any fear factor in terms of, I don't know this person. I'm not connected with this person. If there's a career path, a company, a position that's interesting to you, even the slightest, reach out to them. Right. I think it takes understanding, you know, all right, I want to get into sales. What kind of sales do I want to get into? Okay. I want to get into tech sales. You can research a list of all right top tech companies in Boston. You can start; that's a starting point, and then you start reaching out to different sales people in different roles, asking for thirty minutes of their time. And I'd be very surprised—maybe not at the CRO level or VP of a multi-billion-dollar company—but I'd be very surprised if a sales professional, someone that played sports too, um, wouldn't give you their time to talk about their experience with you. Um, so for me, it's about taking the initiative and being proactive, and I think that will solve for two things. One, you'll get the you'll get the information, their experience, you know, what they went through. But two, you're also creating door openings for yourself, right? You're connecting your brain, you're expanding your network. Where if someone that I don't know reaches out to me and asks for thirty minutes, I'm more than willing to give them that time. If I have ever job opportunity down the roll or down the road. I'll circle back and say, oh, so-and-so reached out to me. I know that they're interested in this. They took the initiative to reach out to me, which is bold, which I appreciate. And you have to be in sales. Maybe I reach back out to them and say, hey, we talked two months ago. I actually have an opportunity now. What do you think? Do you want to give it a shot? So I guess there's a a bunch of different ways you can go about doing this, tapping into your own network, etc. But for me, just reaching out and showing initiative, if you're interested in it, is a great starting point. Don't be... Uh, nervous. Don't be intimidated. Uh, I would say, you know, articulate what you're looking to get out of that conversation and then just do it. Press send and see what happens. Cause I'd be surprised. I think, the, I think people would be surprised with the types of responses they get from people in those positions talking about their experiences and giving some color and, and guidance, uh, for someone that's just starting out in their sales career. Talk to people.
3: That's, that's it. Talk. Don't be afraid. Talk to people. Get out there. I mean, it sounds like the, uh, the typical, uh requirements, job requirements for an SDR, sales development rep at an organization. So I mean you start reaching out, showing confidence, I, I totally agree, Z. Can you can you talk a little bit about your early
2: days when you did get into sales and what you remember from that? Yeah. Listen, I was I was making forty thousand dollars a year and then I got a ten thousand dollar bonus and I thought I was a millionaire. Right? Um so early on it's really fun when you start earning significant money for yourself, right? And you have money to spend, et cetera. So I was, I was enjoying every second of it, uh, you know. And this is this this. I promise, this comes back to you know the sales part of it. But when you're there, it's you know you got the free snacks, you got the camaraderie, you got unlimited PTO, you're having fun in the office, and then that lull hits, right? Like about two months in, where that kind of wave wavers off or temper, tampers tempers off a little bit, and you have to get yourself back or you have to get yourself in the right mindset of this is not a sprint right it is a marathon if you want to make this a career it's got to be a marathon and when you run a marathon you don't just go out one day and say i'm gonna run 26.2 miles right you have to prepare with the plan and then you have to go and actually do it and execute against the plan that you put in place um so i think early on as an sdr uh it was different in the sense of a lot of activity i didn't pick up the phone as much as I had prior to joining a sales company, right? So it's a little bit of a shift in that. And I had I had approached the SDR position as I'm going to show up, I'm going to open Salesforce, and I'm just going to make my calls and send my emails. And what I realized pretty quickly was I was getting very low conversion rates, right? No one was really answering. When I did get someone to connect, I was fumbling it or I wasn't sending it out to the right message, right? So what I learned earlier on, then I was fortunate enough to have good people around me, but it's putting discipline into your day where your day should just be executing off of a plan that you've already put in place versus just showing up and doing the work. Right. Um, and I think there's a, it's a hard difference to make. And sometimes you have to go through the challenges and experience of doing it the other way um, to see that type of failure um, or shortcoming that you're not wanting to or expecting to see. Um, but it was definitely a learning curve for me and more of that light switch aha moment where, you're planning for, you know, days ahead of you versus planning for the day that's right in front of you. Um, but early on it was, you know, it's a grind. It's, it's a lot of activity. It's a lot of, uh, rejection. It's a lot of, uh, I'm not seeing the results based off of what I'm used to for the effort that I'm putting into it. Uh, but that's where the mental, I think, uh, discipline and, uh, determination that you get as an athlete pays off. Yeah.
3: Let's, let's talk about that Zeke. So, I totally agree. I can't, I switched into sales from finance and I had a very structured day to day in finance. You know, one o'clock you do this, nine o'clock you do this, three o'clock you do that. SEC needs this by 4.30, whatever it is. So when I got into sales, it was kind of like the free snacks, the, you know, the corporate culture was a little bit no three piece suits. It's, you know, a polo and slacks and you're hitting the phones when you can and a lot of friends around you. So can you talk about, um, I totally agree. You need discipline and you need a structure that um, will pay off down the road. And it's tough to see that. But you mentioned having strong people around you. Can you talk a little bit about what you think about sales discipline and sales
2: leadership and how important that is? Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it, again, and I've said this before, but I, I'm such a believer in it and anything that you do. But it comes down to the discipline comes, I believe, from time management. Right. So how are you structuring your days? And when are you doing certain activities at a certain time, I think is incredibly important. You know, early on, I was calling chief information security officers at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. or 1 p.m. What CISO or C-level executive is going to be free at 10 a.m., 11 a.m. or 1 p.m.? You know, they're probably in meetings of their own, so they're never going to pick Mm -hmm. up the phone. So it was a waste of a dial because I was a waste of a touch because I was calling them at that time. So it was thinking more, uh Working, working smarter versus harder, right? It's not. I do believe in activity. I do believe activity is the king, but it's smart activity.
1: So Zeke, I, I think like a lot of the stuff you're talking about isn't necessarily things like you had to kind of figure that out. You, you were doing high activity, not seeing the conversion rates. Typically, like for me, I, I call that operating rhythm, and I learned what that meant from mentors. Did you have some like mentors in your early career that that really helped you develop that?
2: Yeah. Absolutely. So, I was one of the fortunate SDRs that had a great account executive or inside sales representative that really took to my own development. And the reason why I say lucky is because I think too far and too I think too common is an account executive or an inside sales representative that has an SDR thinks that the SDR is there to work for them and just source them meetings. And I was very fortunate to have um, an inside sales rep named Steve Taylor, um, an incredible rep. Uh, be my ISR that really worked with me weekly, you know, hours on end to develop my pitch, to develop my how to build out a territory plan, who to reach out to, what message based off of the persona or the role. So he really took the time to invest not only in activity and numbers and meetings generated, but understanding the why behind that's really important. Understanding the why behind, you have to take the time to to put this plan in place or to develop your territory plan. You can't do that at 9am on a Monday that needs to be done off working hours. So then when you get to 9am on a Monday, you can execute against it. So Steve Taylor was, was the first, um, mentor that I had. And I was very fortunate enough to be paired with him. Uh, when I first started as an SDR, definitely.
1: Now you, you've actually been a leader now for like five years, Zeke. Like you moved in from that individual contributor role into leadership. Um, I'd love to like just understand. I, I imagine that your experience with Steve and other, you know, I know a lot of the early leaders at Bitnine and Carbon Black, just phenomenal human beings, phenomenal leaders of humans. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what your leadership style has been? Because you've been doing it for a while now. You, you made that transition pretty early in your career. Um, what what is what has that been like being a leader, and like how do you try to approach that?
2: Yeah, um, I think. Every lead, new leader that gets put into that position, they think, and again, this might be a wide generalization, but I think they think that they're put in that position because they're the best at what they did before, right? I was the best seller, so I've now been promoted. And now I have to spew my knowledge on every single one of my reps to tell them how I did it and why I did it and how it was the best thing going. And I will say I fell victim to that right away. And again, by no means was I the best seller at Carbon Black. You know, I got promoted um, I was having a great year and I had already expressed to my manager eight months prior to being promoted that I wanted to get into management. And again, I can go into this a little bit more about having these types of conversations up front or early on, um, but I was given this opportunity. So I think early on, like um, the first month in, I was kind of like, all right, this is what you should do. You know, I, I was less coaching, I was more directing as a leader. Um, and I was exhausted and we weren't doing, we weren't accomplishing much of anything. And it hit me. I was like, well, I'm trying to have 10 people be like me. And ten people aren't going to be like me. The way that I work is very different, vastly different from how someone else plays. It's very similar to athletics, right? Uh, taking a goalie out of the equation, you know, Brad Marchand can't conform to David Posternak. You know, you like them to bring out qualities in each other, but th- if he tries to be a different player, they're not going to be the best version of themselves. And I think that hit me um, approaching my team where I then took a step back <laughs> and my mentality as a leader is... I work for my reps. I work for my team. My team does not work for me. And easier said than done, right? That's a that's a great statement. But how do you do that? Right? I really took the time to observe, to learn how each one of my reps not only operates, but what are they motivated by individually, and then create a plan with each individual person after a period of time of letting them do it their own way without any type of guidance or any type of coaching to then apply it to them specifically, uniquely. I'll give you an example, right? There was one, I'd say B performer on my team that was a great person, great, you know, member of the team, but was hovering around like 85, 90%, maybe would hit a quota every once in a while. And he was trying to really invest his time into building relationships and building rapport. And it just didn't come naturally to him. He didn't necessarily love that. And again, we want to develop that skill, but his skill was activity right? So for him, it would be more along the lines of part, Rather than reaching out, your KPIs might be 50 emails a day, 50 cold calls. Well, let's change your plan to 100 emails a day, 100 cold calls. So you don't have to build those relationships to get the volume. Whereas another rep on my team, was, it just was natural to her. She was, an, She's an exceptional rep, very successful today. Uh, but for her, I didn't need to see a lot of pipeline. I didn't need to see a lot of activity because everything she had in there was rock solid, right? So it's not... And I didn't want to Tell her, make a hundred cold calls, make a hundred emails and tell him, well, you don't have texting relationship with the CIO. Why don't you have, right? So you can't conform how, you know, the euphoric sales rep to each individual. You really have to pay attention to each individual person as a human being, and then apply, you know, sales training, sales coaching efforts to each individual. Um, so that's kind of how I've approached the leadership is dissecting it, motivating each individual person. To push for the collective of the team that's that's my vision for a team is how do i get each person competing not necessarily against one another but wanting to be the best without wanting to step over one another and pushing for the collective success of the team
1: dude well said that was awesome that's a very good outline z thanks yeah i, I think of that as like that servant leadership style and like just realizing that everybody is so unique right like you you know, when, when I think of mediocre sales leadership, there's two, two things that I see, or three. One is that the guy who was an unbelievable sales rep, it's like Michael Jordan trying to coach people how to play basketball. It's just not going to work. Like they don't, they don't see it the same way, right? So you have to understand that. Number two is they see their team as working for them, whereas like you said, that you work for your team more than anything else. And I think three is just treating everybody like they're the same, their motivations are the same, you can influence them the same. I think great sales leaders understand everybody has a unique, a unique kind of motivation. Like I had a, a rep that worked for me and all she cared about was making a lot of money. So like every deal I would lay out what her commission was going to be on the deal. Yeah. And we would talk about like, all right, how are you going to get this $40,000 check? Like, what are we going to do? And that would be like, she'd be dialed in because of it. So I love,
3: I love yeah. that answer. That was awesome. It's it was great too. Cause, yeah, I was like saying it's spot on, but you started off by saying easier said than done, and it's so true because you know sales leaders they they can it's like Michael Jordan you can be like well I'll just step back and take a three it's easy but like yeah you you want to kind of do that from a
2: management perspective but you can't yeah, yeah that's good absolutely and I I love that about the you know showing how much exactly to the scent, how much that rep would make and the pushing of that you know it, it's. People are motivated by different things and it's not always money and it's okay if it's not always money uh, or if it's not money at all. But un- uncovering what that motivation is, uh, I think is-, is the most important. Thing. Well, not the most important thing, a- an important factor.
1: Totally. Totally. Now now you're in a really cool position, Zeke. You- you've had a bunch of success at some companies that had very cool exits. And now, now someone gave you the keys to the car, right? You're in you're in a new business you guys are early you're growing you're in a very exciting space that privacy management space data privacy management is you know there's new laws passing like every single day that are yep. going to make your value prop very very exciting for companies very exciting to sell what's the playbook man you're you're going to go build out a sales organization what's what what are you what, what are you thinking about
2: yeah, it's it's so funny, and you know, just hearing this question out loud and going through it, and even I, I'm thinking back to the interview process when I was meeting with the CEO, to, you know, before I accepted this position, and you have this vision, right, of how it's going to work, and based off of my experience, what I've been doing for the past you know, five or six years in management, you know, you're thinking of the plays, and then you're calling the plays, and then you have a management team that goes and runs it with their teams, and you have reps that go and run it. And it hit me when I was doing my first campaign. Where I was like, "Whoa, I haven't done this in quite a while." In terms of you know, <laughs> putting a list of people together and being the you know, I'm a senior director of sales, but I'm a BDR. You know, like it's it's such a humbling experience in the best way possible, right? Um, and I took it for this experience where I loved VMware, I loved Carbon Black, I loved where I was. Uh, I could have seen myself there for another fifteen years, and that's when it really hit me. Where it's all right, I'm thirty. Two years old. Do I really want to be doing this for another fifteen years, or do I want to see what I can what I can do on my not on my own necessarily because it, it takes a team and it takes the right opportunity, the right market, the right leadership, etc. Um, but can I go and build something? So now it's uh, I hired my first BDR. So working on building out our BDR team, which then hopefully pull into organic growth into an AE position once we get a number of opportunities there. But um, my vision here is to, is to, while I'll be running inside sales, uh, hopefully uh, we'll have a, a, a bigger team by 2023, which we're in talks of doing that already, which is great. Um, but I'm going to take a lot of what I've learned and what I've learned that I liked and what I didn't like from my prior job, prior experience, and applying it here. Right now, we're just focused on top of the funnel activity. right? So it's back to creating that ideal consumer pr- customer profile, understanding who our target market is, right running plays against those we're doing a lot of a b testing in terms of messaging what's working what's not working right and in terms of my sales experience at carbon black or bit nine plus carbon black as an sdr there are a lot of things that you can do there in terms of branching out and reaching to other departments that apply down the road for example i would meet with se's uh, sales engineers solution engineers i would meet with marketing you know marketing event coordinators and understand how they message and that's really applicable today where i'm marketing I'm our sales engineer. I'm our rep, right? So it, it all ties together. But I guess here it's understanding really who our target market is that we're going after. What's the right messaging to be able to, to hit them? Fortunately, we have, uh, you know, as you mentioned, state laws that are being passed daily that help in this area. Um, but it's, it's about the right timing there. So it's, it's been fun. I don't think I have the secret sauce. I think you just have to be agile. You have to commit to something and do it. See if it works. If it doesn't. Be quick to admit that it didn't work and move on. So we're in that phase right now where we are trying, or trying to come up with different things that we can do uh, on two-week sprints, uh, seeing what the results are, and then either adapting it or continuing it if it's successful. So we're in that you know trial and error. Phase. It's crazy,
3: Zeke. I I want to tie this all together. So you said a few good things there, and also the beginning, you said uh, at the beginning of the show, you said getting into the. Uh, Initial SDR BDR role at an organization—you kind of looked at that as like your MBA for sales, and you're learning all this, uh, all these different campaigns and how to network with people and how to be disciplined. I think it's funny that like you you learn the core competencies of sales at the entry level, and then when you get into this role where you're building out a sales organization and a sales team, you. You go right back to square one. Okay, how do we generate demand? How do we go to market? How do we get meetings? Like it's it's all I, I I've seen it a million times over. The best sales reps I know are the best business development people I know. They just are. You know, it's just that's
2: how it is. So I could not agree more with you. I am a full believer in a BDR, SDR, whatever however however you want to call it. I am a full believer in that program in the development, not only for what it means for the company. But from an individual professional going through it or person going through it, you're going to learn so much in that time as an SDR. Um, and that's going to carry you through the rest of your career, through the rest of your career. Um, I actually tell people that are evaluating going to be an SDR or jumping right into the AE position where the OTE on target earnings is a lot higher. Take a step back. Go and do it the right way, in my opinion, right? Go and do it the right way as an SDR because that's not going to get you to... You might not get to the AE as quickly as you wanted to in your mind, but I can guarantee you once you get that position, you're going to be a lot more successful and you're going to be thankful that you did. Uh, It's crazy to me in sales, as everyone on this call knows, how it two years down the road seems like a lifetime away, but we live a quarter at a time and those quarters seem to fly by, right? And... If you put yourself in an SDR position for six, nine, even twelve months, I guarantee you the next twelve months you're going to be paying dividends for it than if you just jumped into an AE position. So I could not say enough good things about an SDR program in general for people pursuing it.
1: We, we gotta, we gotta snip
2: that for shift group right there.
1: Um, and by the way, like you know, I, I know a guy that has some BDrs for you when you're ready to scale, buddy. So just let me yep. know. I'll connect you with
2: him. Well, you're <laughs> the first person I'm calling. JR. we talked about this a, a few months ago, and. We're working on the funding, but um, you're the first person I'm calling because when we're building out our bench, you know, we're going to connect. Absolutely.
1: Can you, uh,
2: Zeke? Can you think of a memorable commission check and what you did with the cash? I can, I can, and I'm I'm laughing because it came right to my mind once you said commission check, and it's the first thing I think of. And it's um, I was fortunate enough to be in Accelerators early um, in 2019. You know, I had a full Q4 being in Accelerators, and I got a commission check at the end of that quarter. Yeah. Six digits, $150,000. And it was one of those, um, that was one of those moments for me where, and I don't say that's to gloat, but it was, I was really proud of the team and how they will be accomplished that year. it was the first time that I was like, this is what they mean about not making it in sales, but the benefits of being in sales. And once you taste that, once you get exposed to it, you never want anything besides it you never want. You think about winning a championship in sports, wait till you get a commission check for seven figures, you know, which is not unheard of. Um, I'm sure you guys yeah. on this call have made a lot of commi- big large commission checks and that feeling will never go away. And it's not all about money but it's about what you can do with that money. You know, I used that for a down payment on our house in Wellesley, uh, you know, which got us into Wellesley in 2019 and that's what we wanted to be in. This is the town we wanted to be in. And because of that check, we were able to do that. Um, so yeah. it just Full circle. And yeah, you never want another taste of it. You always want to be in accelerators. Let's just put it that way. Uh, after you, you, stole, you sold your way back into Wellesley, kid. That's unreal. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> I love it, dude. That's unreal. Um, so listen, Zeke, we you'll appreciate this. So we, we, I kind of stole it from my old man. He used to tell us when we were little, a lot of people play hockey but not a lot of people are hockey players, right? And there's a difference, right? You can show up, go through the motions, or you can be a pro. So we like we learned pretty early on uh, what it meant to be a pro when it came to athletics, right? And that turned out to you know great careers for me and all, all, all my brothers, but especially Bobby, obviously. Now, I say the same thing to the candidates we work with early on. We talk about like, listen, do you want to sell software? Or do you want to be a software sales professional? So the highest praise we can give to a salesperson is, is calling them a pro. What does being a pro mean to you in this career?
2: all, I, I love that phrase. You know, do you want to sell, you know, sell software? Do you want to be a sales professional? I, I love that phrase. Um, it really is a great way to frame the question, um, to answer your question. And I don't think that I think you would hear this a lot, but it, it comes down, I think, to two things. One, I think you genuinely have to be passionate about it right? I don't think you can just wake up and say, I want to get into sales. And what does that mean? Sure, you can do it, but you're not going to see the benefits of actually being into it. So I think there's, there needs to be some sort of passion there. And it doesn't have to be, I love building relationships. I love being an extrovert and talking in front of people. I love the attention. You might love negotiations. You might love the complexity of a deal. You might love the prospecting side of it. So I think there has to be some sort of natural passion there to be considered a pro because once it gets tough, you're going to have to push through the hard times and when you're faced with a rejection. So I think passion is the first step. Um, And then the second is is consistency, right? And again, that's the one that I'm sure you're going to probably hear whomever you ask that question to, but consistency. A consistent sales professional or person in sales is incredibly hard to come by, but is the most valuable component to your sales team, right? Companies live and die based off of their forecasts, their projections, their targets. And if you have a consistent sales rep, um, (coughs) excuse me, That's invaluable to the business. Now, unpacking what consistent means is is a whole other thing. It, It takes a lot of work to be consistent, right? It's not you show up and you just hit a number. It's what do you do day in and day out so at the end of the day, you hit that number, right? I always talk about behaviors versus results. To me, if you're focused solely on the results, you'll never get there. If you're focused on the behaviors day in and day out, week in, week out, you'll get to the results that you want. So focusing on the behaviors like finding fifteen new people that you can reach out to, like taking the initiative and taking a chance, even though your gut's telling you this is the most painful thing that you've ever had to do and send a cold email or pick up the phone and cold call. Those are the things, those are the behaviors that change hitting your quota, not just once, but consistently. So consistency is by far to me, you know, what separates professionals from, you know, a one hit wonder. I, I take a I take, you know, an an average consistent I just can't really have that, but I, I take a consistent performer any day over someone that's going to hit a home run once every four quarters um, it's just much better for the business and i can work better with someone like that so to me that that's key
1: well said dude passion and consistency like boom i couldn't have said it better myself that's awesome well zeke this was an unreal conversation i think we might have lost you on there halfway through but uh, thank you so much for for spending some time with us buddy yeah. um really excited to see what you build and and hopefully we get to we get to partner up with you when you when you start really building it um good luck and and thanks again for joining us my friend
0: this wraps up this episode of merchants of change if you enjoyed this episode the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts if you're interested in working with us please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io